You are listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Due to the pandemic, this year's podcasts have been conducted remotely over video communication software. Welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Cohen Center. In this episode takeover, we invite you to join us for a conversation on rhetoric and indigeneity. My name is Talina Turner, and I am a first-year master's student in communication and advocacy with a concentration in strategic communication. Hello there. I'm your second host. Thank you for listening. My name is Izzy. I'm also a first-year graduate student in communication and advocacy, and I'm in the strategic concentration as well. And I'm Jazz, the third host for this discussion. I am a second year in the Common Advocacy Program, also concentrating on strategic communication. So whether you are joining us today during your morning, afternoon, or evening, we thank you for being here. Now that we've introduced ourselves, we want to start by saying just a little bit about the purpose of this podcast. Jazz, Izzy, and I are all students in SCOM 541, which is a graduate seminar in rhetorical theory. Throughout the semester, we, along with our classmates, have had the opportunity to engage with a variety of topics and questions in rhetorical scholarship. So our goal in this podcast is to bring these discussions and these conversations into a public sphere to ensure that they do not end with us in the classroom. We believe that words and ideas have power, but as Michel Foucault might argue, that their power is fundamentally relational. They are derived from the ways that we use them to engage in discourse with other people. In this episode, Jazz, Izzy, and I will be focusing on indigenous rhetorical theory. Specifically, we're going to be introducing, summarizing, and discussing common themes in two articles that we engaged with in seminar. As we discuss these articles, our goal is to center indigenous perspectives and values. And for this reason, we do want to begin by acknowledging that none of us speak from an indigenous perspective. In fact, our interest in listening to and learning from indigenous voices is one reason we chose to focus on this topic in our podcast episode. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Talina. Um, I think that what we've learned uh, thus far through this process, as well as what drew, the, drew us to this topic, is that it is incumbent upon us as academics to really go out of our way to engage with certain scholarship from underrepresented and oppressed categories of people. Yes, exactly, Izzy. I think that we as students of academia have been able to witness where we can see a certain type of voice has been prioritized currently in communication studies and current rhetorical research. And this prioritized voice is not actually representative of all of the identities and voices that are out there. And picking this topic today, we get to hear some of those voices. So again, thank you for joining us. Now that we've had the opportunity to introduce ourselves, our topic, and our purpose, let's move into introducing the two articles we'll be discussing today. Okay, so we selected two articles for today's discussion. The first article is Enacting Red Power, the Consumatory Function in Native American Protest Rhetoric by Randall Lake. This article was published in 1983 in the 69th volume of the Quarterly Journal of Speech. 
This article is an exploration of militant Indian rhetoric as utilized by the Red Power Movement in the late 1960s and 1970s. Lake discussed the American Indian Movement, its audience, and how its rhetoric played a successful consumatory function. Our second article is Lisa Hall's Navigating Our Own Sea of Islands, Remapping a Theoretical Space for Hawaiian Women and Indigenous Feminism. This piece was published in 2009 by the University of Minnesota Press in the 24 value, volume of the Wichajo Say Review. In this article, Hall discussed the erasure of Hawaiian indigenous feminists and its connection to colonization. She discussed how this erasure plays out and how we identify and think about groups in terms of issues like categorization and academia. Yeah, within these texts that we chose to cover, we identified two themes throughout both of them, sovereignty and erasure. Before going forward, we want to make sure that we define those terms because they're very broad, and I'm sure that you'll notice some overlap between them throughout this discussion. When we refer to sovereignty, uh, we mean self-actualization and self-determination, i.e. the possession of agency. This leads into a concept of the ability to influence one's own destiny and freedom from the domination of others. Next, when referring to erasure, we refer to, or rather I think of it through the lens of both physical and metaphysical dispossession, meaning the removal, uh, not just from land, but also from the imaginary of individuals, from academic and intellectual discussion, representation within literature, and other forms of media as well. So next, we're going to transition into our discussion section, where we will talk about these themes in relation to the text by answering a few guiding questions. Okay, thank you, Izzy. To start off our discussion, I would like to first discuss the theme of sovereignty. My first question for us is how do Lake and Hall approach sovereignty in their articles? So I'll go first. Um, when I think of the concept of sovereignty within both of these texts, uh, I'll start with Lake. It's Lake makes a very direct comment about the concept of sovereignty through his criticism of how individuals view the audience for militant Indian rhetoric. Um, he sort of makes an argument here that through our understanding of the capability of that rhetoric to bring individuals together and rally them toward a common cause or movement, that that can lead to the reclamation of sovereignty for the indigenous body. Um, and he makes a few examples, um, for example, how that leads to demands of returning the land to the native. Um, when, that, when I think of a lot of the settler colonialism scholarship that I've engaged with, the ultimate representation of the reclamation of sovereignty is the return of land to the native. So he's making a very powerful argument about the role of sovereignty within protest rhetoric here. Uh, next, in relation to Lisa Hall's article, I identify sovereignty particularly insofar as the relationship between U.S. feminism and indigenous feminism. Hall discussed a concept called manawahine, which is basically the idea of indigenous female empowerment. And this was stripped from Hawaiians and other indigenous cultures when they experienced colonization. So there's an argument to be made that through the distancing or challenging of the ways that we fold indigenous bodies into certain binaries or monolithicize them within our representations, that that can lead to the reclamation of sovereignty for those people. 
Izzy, you make an interesting point about how indigenous empowerment of women was stripped away with colonization. There's a part where Hall mentions that some indigenous women have an issue with claiming feminism as it currently is because of how it's been produced. And she makes the point that before colonization happened, the Hawaiian culture already was feminist in its nature. So it's interesting to see the influence of colonization and how much it's impacted this group to the point where now that people are trying to give them this specific feminist power to them, they are uninterested and confused about what they're talking about because of how it's been repackaged. It took away the ability for them to define what it means to them to be a feminist because now it's completely different view. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Jess. Um, it's really interesting because Hall brings up a lot of different interrelated structures of power uh, that operate within and with colonization, right? So it wasn't just sort of settlers moving in on the land, but there was also a combination of aspects of capitalism that motivated that, as well as the influence of Christianity and how that led to the oppression and repression of native culture, heritage, and spirituality. So from our discussion, one thing I'm hearing that I'd like to draw upon is that when we talk about sovereignty, it's different from the concept of, of freedom or independence, especially when we think in terms of how those ideas are typically, typically conceptualized in the United States. Within both of our pieces that we're focusing on, Lake and Hall both connected sovereignty to self-expression and determination. So, for example, Lake's argument focused on how the Red Power Movement, the American Indian Movement, or AIM, and more generally, militant Indian rhetoric was a call for indigenous peoples within the U.S. to come together and to reassert their sovereignty as indigenous nations. Lake's arguments frame the movement in terms of self-reliance so that the goals of the AIM, particularly in regards to the return of land, which he mentions within his discussion, um, the goals of AIM were not to negotiate with the federal government, but instead it was a charge for the government to recognize and respond to the inborn power and sovereignty of indigenous nations. Again, with the focus of that movement, the primary audience being indigenous people. Yeah, and I think that idea that, of recognition that you bring up uh, sort of goes into a the another theme that we talked about and identified within these texts, and that is the ways in which individuals choose to represent and think about the indigenous body, particularly going back to Hall, uh, we can think about questions of representation of folding of the indigenous body or Hawaiian specifically into Asian Pacific Islander, as well as the question of whether or not feminism can encapsulate the experience of all women of color, but again, particularly indigenous women. Um, and I sort of think of that through the lens of the power of rhetoric, you know, whether or not we think of the reclamation of land as returning by the federal government or simply recognition of sovereignty that was always already there. I think, so I think that's a really apt point that you're making, Talina. So some interesting points are being made about the power of rhetoric, which actually leads us to this next question. How does power relate to rhetoric and communication? I think that within both of these texts, um, 
I think that the direction that our discussion might be going toward is sort of an idea about how we as individuals, you know, the public or academics choose to engage in and rhetorically discuss these concepts do necessarily have consequence. I would identify that in relation to power, you know, rhetoric can manifest, undermine, or reinscribe certain power dynamics. And I'm referring to power in a relational sense here. We see that in a very direct way through Lake's criticism of how some scholarship frames militant Indian rhetoric. And we also see that in a more implicit way with Lisa Hall, I think, particularly the question of what is the harm of issues of representation? When I think to answer that question, Ultimately, I come back to the conclusion of it's sort of a question of not necessarily whether or not the dominant group or non-Indigenous people have all of the power, but there are instances in which our rhetorical choices can help to support or motivate forms of rhetoric that do further empower Indigenous people. I actually really enjoyed Lake's discussion of power. I feel like his discussion of power was different from any I've ever seen before in rhetorical communication. Sometimes it feels like power is often discussed with a negative connotation or something that only a very elite group can have or something that is very seldom used properly. But Lake explains that for the indigenous culture, it's considered a supernatural force. If you don't mind me quoting, he states on page 135 that power is described as what works to affect everything, which is beyond the ordinary power of men. Outside the common processes of nature, it is present in the atmosphere of life, attaches itself to persons and things, and is manifested by results which can only be ascribed to its operation. I think this discussion goes really far to explain what power can do. In regard to its relationship to communication, I can see how this understanding of power can influence the impact of communication. I recall we, when we had this discussion in class, um, Paul sort of pushed us in the direction of not overthinking Lake's conception of power, but simply thinking of it as the ability to, ability to cause change, sort of a force that causes change through individual actions or motivating individual action. Um, I think that one place that we need to get to in this discussion is how power, or rather how rhetoric can manifest power that can cause social change. You know, there's an interesting discussion that's had in a lot of debates as to whether or not rhetoric or discourse can influence governmental action or spur political change. Uh, I think that when we think about certain indigenous movements like Idle No More in Canada or the Standing Rock protest in opposition to uh, the D Dakota Access Pipeline, we see instances where maybe not entirely spurred by rhetoric, but there are indigenous movements that are currently making calls for social change. And I think the ways which we as non-indigenous people should interact with scholarship it should help inform how we help to maximize their power. Yeah, so this idea of power is especially interesting. And we've talked about several different notions and conceptions of power throughout the semester. Um, but when we talk about power as something that can be taken or given, we do ascribe this view to power that exists outside of us. And perhaps that it's through our language and our actions that we manage to use it. 
But one of the things that we see in Lake and Hall's pieces is this very different conception of power. Jazz, I like how you had focused on Lake's description of power as supernatural force. And I want to revisit this idea very briefly of, of the connection between power and spirit. So in the readings, power is conceptualized as you had talked about with us, you know, as a quote, as beyond and outside the forces of man, but it's also conceptualizes as an entity that flows through the body, the earth and cultural tradition. Much of Lake's article talks about um, how the red power movement was a movement to move towards returning to cultural tradition and restoring cultural ways. And so in this conception of power, it does lead Lake within that article to talk about the red power movement's uh, criticism of non-Indigenous and specifically in the context of the article, white uses of language and power, which is similar to what we see in Hall's article when she critiques white hegemonic concepts of feminism. Yeah, Talina, I think that that takes us in a really good direction because it ties us back to the point you made earlier about how power is always connected to the self, right? Like self-determination, um, the ability to take action. So I think that folding these ideas that all three of us are attempting to express, I think we end up at a combination that sort of determines that power is a force that gives people the ability to take action for themselves, to maybe not reclaim sovereignty per se, but to recognize their own individual or group capabilities. So one example I think might be relevant here as we're talking about this idea of connection, I read in a book that I recently started reading. The book is called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And in the open chapter of the book, uh, Kimmerer, who is a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, writes about the origin story of Sky Woman, who fell to the earth from Sky World. And in the story, the animals of the earth help Sky Woman to create land, which she then nourished and cared for in gratitude for the help of the animals. Uh, Kimmerer compares this origin story with the story of Adam and Eve in the Christian tradition, which she actually claims shows a broken relationship between people and nature and that Adam and Eve were forced to leave the Garden of Eden. And so in this account of origin, we see the connection between people and nature, between spirit exemplified. Um, and, and we see spirit and power flowing through those relationships. I really like uh, her comparison and the way that she, she describes these things within the book because we see through it the inseparable connection between the physical world, the physical body, the spiritual body, the rhetorical body, and their many iterations of existence. Awesome, guys. So I'm going to move us along to the second theme of our discussion, and that is erasure. So my next question for you guys is how do you, how do Hall and Lake differently address this topic in their two articles? When I approach the conversation of erasure, um, going back to the definition that we provided earlier, I think that it's important that we draw the distinction between physical and sort of metaphysical erasure. You know, when 
physical erasure being the question of literal removal from the land and the ability to access certain resources and privileges of the nation state. Whereas metaphysical erasure, again, we conceptualize as sort of how the native is absent from certain aspects of the imaginary and the question of lack of representation within certain forms of scholarship, literature, and media. Um, when we approach it from, from, the, from that lens, right, it becomes a question of, like we see in Hall's piece, the many examples of representational erasure in which the native body is folded into categories which it does not fit, or in other instances, made monolithic where it isn't appropriate. Vice versa, what we see in Lake is he brings that, he brings up both the questions of metaphysical and physical erasure insofar as how individuals choose to think about militant Indian rhetoric. You know, that can be an instance of metaphysical erasure, you know, the crowding out or not thinking of the indigenous body as the potential audience for protest rhetoric. And again, physical erasure arises in relation to the history, a historical analysis of how we came to this point. How from first contact, the relationship between the indigenous body and settlers has always been defined by dispossession and the elimination of the native. That is a very key discussion of aspects of physical erasure as well. I really like the point you made about erasing the possibility for indigenous people to be an audience to the rhetoric of the Red Power Movement. This was also something that I thought of while working through Lake's discussion about the criticism that the movement failed. Critics just assumed that the movement was talking to white audiences, which was actually not the case at all. Um, and this just made me wonder how it got to the point where we couldn't even think about this as being a potential audience. I think the answer to this is hit on by Hall, where she mentions that we tend to see everything in this black and white paradigm where identity is framed as either one or the other and doesn't prioritize or even acknowledge any other group. While she was mainly speaking of the experiences of Hawaiian indigenous women and how they are folded into these other groups like the APA and API index and therefore erased, I think that this situation speaks to a lot of the circumstances where erasure stems. So as you were talking, Jazz, it brought me back to some of the points that we had began discussing with Lisa Hall's article. We've talked a lot in our conversation about rhetoric as, as a mode or a method of critique, but we haven't yet had a lot of discussion in our conversation today about rhetoric as a field. And Jazz, the point you made about the erasure of indigenous peoples as an audience for militant Indian rhetoric in Lake's article is particularly relevant when we start to consider which voices get privileged in academic scholarship and how those decisions, those publications in turn, shape our discursive spaces, both a, a public and an academic discursive space. And so to this point, one thing we had talked about as we were researching for our podcast today is that Lisa Hall's article is published in the, the Wichajo Say Review, which according to JSTOR is an interdisciplinary journal devoted to indigenous perspectives and advocacy. And I thought this was particularly interesting because what we see here is a declaration of presence and space, a place for indigenous perspectives to be centered within academic discussion, which we had already talked about in so many ways that indigenous perspectives are often not centered. 
you know, and so in terms of our conversation, when we talk about power and rhetoric, we have to acknowledge the importance of spaces and our mutual obligation to engage with and empower indigenous perspectives through these avenues and others. Thank you, Talina. You actually lead us into the last question for today, which is why does this representation of race and or ethnicity matter? I, I think that's a really excellent question. And it sort of gets us back to the idea of how erasure and sovereignty operate dualistically to influence the lived experience of indigenous people. So for one instance, the question of representation is a very big question about how we must reconcile as, not, as individuals who are not indigenous, the many ways in which we benefit from the domination and conquest of the settler state. You know, how we choose to think about and interact with this scholarship. But also, I've spoken about this concept of the imaginary a lot from our perspective, but it also frames and can change the imaginary of, in, of indigenous people as well. There's a lot of scholarship that sort of investigates how individuals respond when they're confronted with their own domination and repression almost all of the time. And a lot of critique about how that reframes an individual's relationship with their own identity and heritage. So I, I don't wanna go too far into the realm of speaking for others here, but I think representation operates in both the level of causing individuals who have privilege to be incentivized or naturally to ignore that privilege and acquiesce to the structures and norms that erase the indigenous body, as well as it sort of makes the domination of indigenous peoples, both physical and, meta and metaphysical, in terms of what they, their own belief in what they can do to escape that condition. Yeah, so I want to echo some of the points that you made here, Izzy, especially in terms of mentioning and having a discussion about structure and societal structures. And one topic that we've talked about in rhetoric, as well as several other of our seminars this semester, is the process of advocacy. When we think about it generally, it's extremely easy to think about processes of change, and particularly systemic change, as nebulous. But so many of our discussions have focused on the communication lines, relationships, and other elements that drive change in our communities. And so in that vein, when we talk about representation, representation is essential to communication and advocacy because it's a key that allows us to build and sustain relationships, especially when we start to consider those representations and those positions of privilege that certain individuals occupy within our society. Now, relationships are always multifaceted. Representation influences how we reconcile aspects of our own identities as well as we relate to how other people uh, experience their lives and how we relate to other people in our lives. And so having the opportunity to be meaningfully heard and to be listen to and then and also in turn having the opportunity to listen and taking that opportunity it starts this process of vision building which in turn creates opportunities for dialogue and then hopefully opportunities for action and so this is a point 
about why representation and why it matters uh, that I think we can see as a theme throughout Hall's and Lake's writing. Thank you guys. It was a great discussion and now we're going to start wrapping it up. So what are some major takeaways in regard to the implications for communication we want to leave this discussion with? So my whole jam throughout all of this has just been the question of how this shapes or reframes our own relationship to what we consider ethical for us as scholars to pursue and understand about indigenous people. So moving forward, I think this means for us and for the field that we can't be satisfied with just saying, you know, like we did our part, we engaged with some indigenous scholarship, we get the point, right? Instead, how we move forward needs to be a question of how we translate this knowledge into helping and supporting our indigenous brothers and sisters, for example, engaging in their movements while not taking them over from our place of privilege, um, attempting to maximize their voices when they're engaged in protests like Standing Rock or against the Keystone XL pipeline. For me, it becomes a continuing question of what is my own relationship to this group of people, uh, the structures that harm them, and the scholarship that they produce. Ultimately, this is an effort to determine what I can do to be the best ally for them that I can be. So as we bring our discussion to a conclusion, and we talk about how we carry this conversation forward, I want to first just take the time to acknowledge that, you know, we've only discussed two articles today, um, two vastly different articles that we've attempted to read and discuss common themes in. Um, but one of the, the most important ways and probably the most uh, direct ways that we can carry forward is to continue, continue to read and engage in Indigenous scholarship. Um, but I do want to bring us back to Hall's assertions on memory in the conclusion of her piece. So Hall writes, quote, memory is what fuels our visions and inspires our futures. The need to bring the past forward into our consciousness is ongoing because colonization relies on forced forgetting and erasure, end quote. So as I had started to mention, you know, beyond having this conversation, our responsibility going forward lies in intentional consideration and action. Our responsibility lies not just in deconstructing and hearing rhetoric, but in engaging with it and creating productive spaces for reflexive growth in ourselves, in the work that we do, and the lives that we live. Okay, and that is all the time we have. Thank you so much for listening, and we welcome questions and, and any opportunities to further, dis to further this discussion. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at cohencenter at jmu.edu. Both our intro and outro music come from the Stock Library available at anchor.fm.